How's that? Am I frightening out everybody that wasn't expecting poetry? This is from a heartwarming book written by a uh, fac uh, faculty member here, Andrew uh, Hudgens in the English department. And uh, it's called, it's from a book called Shut Up, You're Fine, Poems for Very, Very Bad Children. So go out, get it for all the children in your life that need someone to speak to them in such a way. Oh, she's too, okay. Uh, this one's called Magic. The cracks on the sidewalk hold powerful magic. Step on me once and your mom's paraplegic. No one had told me I walked without thought on whether my sneakers touched cracks or not. My dear mom writhing with a shattered back, her skin drooping slackly, her toes turning black. But once I had heard of the crack's awful power, I placed my feet gingerly, each step made me cower. One morning, not watching, I tripped on a crack. My God, I had broken my own mother's back. I'd stop her from suffering. I'd make the pain cease. I'd caused it. I'd stop it. I could grant her release. Between there and home, I stomped all the lines, exploding them all like long-distance mines. I ran in the house and searched for remains. My mom under the sink, cleaning the drains. I was all set to cry. My face was tragic. But mom was alive. My world wasn't magic. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, <clears throat> I told you I should open with these, Judy, that, uh, that everybody would love these. Um, okay, this one's called Daddy, Are We Meat? They get better. I really like these, actually. Daddy, are we meat, Jane asked. Mommy, are we meat? Daddy hemmed and Mama hawed and both stared at their feet. Pretend I am a market pig. Pretend I am a steer. I know my shoulder is a brisket and rump roast is my rear. But where is my porterhouse and ribeye, my tenderloin and flank? I want to know all my good cuts, including cross-cut shank. Daddy, are we meat, Jane asked. Mommy, are we meat? Her mom looked slightly queasy. Her dad slid down his seat. That day, against her will, sweet Jane turned vegetarian. A child who knows we all are meat soon learns, soon learns we're carrion. So that's Andrew Hudgens. Again, get it for your uh, children in your life. Uh, the next one, this uh, person is not on uh, associated with OSU, although the others will. Uh, and I did uh, the, the three books that I'm going to read from today, Shut Up, You're Fine, uh, Andrew Hudgens, uh, we just did an uh, interview with him. It's on our, um, well, I'm not really sure where it'll be, but eventually it'll be on our website. We did an interview with C.C. Finley, uh, the author of The Patriot Witch, and uh, Baghdad at Sunrise is Dr. Peter Mansour, and all of these can be found on our website in one form or another, uh, perhaps not exactly today, but sooner or later. So anyway, this is Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut who uh, some of you may have heard of, and uh, he was uh, uh, from Indiana. So maybe we can claim him just by proximity as being somebody associated with Ohio State. I'm sure he's heard of us. Harrison Bergeron, this is one of the stories he wrote about that were uh, uh, sort of science fiction, and those of you who have read Vonnegut knows that he straddles a lot of different lines, or uh, straddled, rather. He died a couple years ago. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. 
Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution and the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant that she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people from George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a real pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh? said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yep, said George. He tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good. No better than anyone else would have been anyway. They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked, so that no one, seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face, would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with a vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two out of the eight ballerinas. George saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I'd think it'd be real interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel, a little envious. All the things they think up. Um, said George. Only, if I was handicapper general, you know what I would do, asked Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general, a woman named Diana Moon Glampers. If I was Diana Moon Glampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday, just chimes, kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who is now in jail, about Harrison. But a 21-gun salute in his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rims of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor and were holding their temples. All of a sudden you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa so as you can rest your handicap bags on the pillow, honey punch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot and canvas bags which was padlocked around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. If there was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls, just a few. 
Two years in prison and $200,000 fine for every ball I took out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take a few out when you came home from work, said Hazel, I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just sit around. If I tried to get away with it, said George, then other people would try to get away with it, and pretty soon we'd be right back to the dark ages again with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. There you are, said George. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. Reckon it'd fall apart, said Hazel. What would, said George blankly. Society, said Hazel uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about, since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say, Ladies and gentlemen. He finally gave up and handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right, Hazel said to the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin, she must have been extraordinarily beautiful, because the mask she wore was hideous. It was easy to see that she was the strongest and most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicap bags were as big as those worn by 200-pound men. And she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was a very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was warm, luminous, a timeless melody. Excuse me, she said. And she began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail, where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He is a genius and an athlete, is under-handicapped, and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen, upside down, then sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever worn heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than H.G. men could think of them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick, wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him wanging headaches besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people, but Harrison looked like a walking junkyard. In the race of life, Harrison carried 300 pounds. And to offset his good looks, the G-men required that at all times he wear a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and cover his even white teeth with black caps at Snaggletooth Random. If you see this boy, said the ballerina, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was a shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Screams and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again, as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and well he might have, for many was the time he came home and had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, said George, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen. Clanking, 
clownish and huge. Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the uprooted studio door was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear? I am the emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot, and the studio shook. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, sickened. I am a greater ruler than any man who has ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper, tore straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs into the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealing a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down at the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment paused, passed, and then a ballerina arose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make you dukes and barons and earls. The music began. It was normal at first, cheap, false, silly. But Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs, waving them like batons as he sang the music as he wanted it played. He slammed them back into their chairs. The music began again and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for a while, listened gravely as though synchronizing their heartbeats with it. They shifted their weight to their toes. Harrison placed his big hands on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then, in an explosion of joy and grace, into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They wheeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was 30 feet high, but each leap brought the dancers closer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling. They kissed it. And then, neutralizing gravity with love and pure will, they remained suspended in air inches below the ceiling, and they kissed each other for a long, long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the emperor and empress were dead before they hit the floor. Diane Moon Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed it at the musicians and told them they had 10 seconds to get their handicaps back on. It was then that the Bergeron's television tube burned out. Hazel turned to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out in the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, pausing while a handicapper signal shook him up, and then he sat down again. You been crying, he said to Hazel. Yep, she said. What about, he said. I forget, she said. Something real sad on television. What was it, he said. It's all kind of mixed up in my mind, said Hazel. Forget sad things, said George. I always do, said Hazel. That's my girl, said George. He winced. 
there was the sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy, said Hazel. You can say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel, I could tell that one was a doozy. All right. So, C.C. Finley uh, is the author of The Patriot Witch. It's uh, a book, uh, first in a series of three, the, uh, uh, and uh, it's about the Revolutionary War and, you know, sort of a, a what if, if uh, magic were real, which it is, right? And if, uh, you know, it were being used around the time of the Revolutionary War. So I'm going to read a selection from this uh, Probably maybe a first chapter or something like that, violating copyright with impunity, really. I'm looking forward to it. Um, ah, Desani. Um, you're kind of required to do that at Ohio State since Coke owns Desani. Ah, Desani. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> God forbid you try to buy a Pepsi. Oh, I forgot. This is going out over the air. Ah, we'll take that out. Anyway, <laughs> it's about a, a young um, man learning that he has magical powers, a man named Proctor Brown. So here we go. Chapter 1, April 1775. Proctor Brown stopped in the middle of bustling King Street, close enough to Boston's long wharf to smell the fishing boats and wished he hadn't worn his best linen jacket. He rolled his shoulders to loosen the fit, but it still felt too tight. His mother had given him the linen jacket two years ago for his 18th birthday, and he'd already outgrown it. Taking over all the work on the farm hadn't made his shoulders any smaller. The elegantly lettered sign of the British coffee house swayed over him, above the door of the narrow bay-windowed building squeezed between aged storefronts. Emily Ruck waited inside. He would be excited to see Emily again, except her father was going to be there, too. It figured... The first time he was to meet Emily's father, and he would show up in a jacket that was two years too small. A fine impression that was going to make. He tugged the sleeves down one last time and stepped resolutely toward the door. A rattling cart loaded with barrels of molasses careened toward him, and Proctor jumped out of the way to keep his feet from being crushed by the wheels. His elbows bumped into somebody behind him. I beg your pardon, Proctor began to say as he turned. A bright flash cut off Proctor's sentence and made him avert his eyes. When he blinked them clear, four men in the red coats of the British Marines blocked his way, two bullies and two officers. The senior officer glared at Proctor. The flash had come from something at his throat, but the light faded, and Proctor no longer saw it. The Marines snickered, mistaking Proctor's averted eyes for fear. The largest one loomed over Proctor, shoving and shoved him. Watch where you're going, and watch your manners, he said in a thick Scots accent. Clearly, I cannot do a thick Scots accent. Proctor's urge to strike back surprised him by its violence, but he mastered the feeling in an instant, not wanting to ruin his best jacket before meeting Emily's father. He lifted his head and met the big Scot's eyes. Come, be good fellows now, the senior officer said, his accent similar but not as strong. There was no harm done. The Marines brushed past Proctor as if he were nothing. Proctor stared at the senior officer's back. The light of the man's throat had faded as suddenly as it had flashed. Proctor couldn't even say what he'd seen, as there was nothing unusual about the officer's uniform or its embellishments. As they entered the coffee house, he saw Emily wave to him through the panes of the window. 
She shimmered like a mirage through the uneven glass. A similar ripple rolled through his stomach when he returned the greeting. He tugged at his collar, which felt tight as his jacket. Meeting Emily's father couldn't be any worse than dealing with his own mother, could it? He stepped up to the entrance and pulled on the handle. The door opened onto laughter and clackering crockery and the scent of pipe tobacco. Dozens of chairs and benches crowded the long, narrow building with brass candlesticks on every table, though only a few of them were lit. The walls were bare, not that you could see much of them with all the people gathered. A variety of British officers, periwigged officials, and ambitious merchants all talking over one another. Two black slaves, one laden with cups, the other with platters, ran from table to table. The British Marines Proctor had bumped into moved into the back of the room. Emily sat at a table up front. She had arranged her cap so that her black curls spilled out of it. The yellow silk ribbon in the back matched the piece she had given Proctor as a keepsake. He reached into his pocket and brushed it with his thumb. Although she sat with her hands folded delicately in her lap, her large eyes were bright and mischievous. Proctor couldn't help himself and grinned back at her. The man sitting at the table rose and cleared his throat. Thomas Ruck, sugar merchant, Emily's father. The resemblance was remarkable for the way it was transmuted her in her own features. Her black hair matched his in color, but her curls were her, his unruly tangle. Her round face became jowls and a second chin, and her pink cheeks reddened into his veins and sunburn. Emily's butter-cuttered silk dress was even outmatched by her father's sumptuously tailored jacket and ornate lace ruffs. Cuffs. Ruck's thick eyebrows curved down in disapproval that mimicked the shape of his mouth. Emily, he said, you didn't tell me that you planned to introduce me to a mute. Emily's eyes flushed. Proctor tore off his hat and stepped forward, offering his hand. I'm sorry, sir. My name is Proctor Brown. Yes, I know. I've heard entirely too much about you already. Ruck ignored the offer of a hand and sat down impatiently, waving his plump fingers at Proctor to take the third seat. Let's get this over with. Proctor bumped the chair against the table, shaking the candelabra as, it sat, as he sat. It's good to see you again, Mr. Brown, Emily said, more formally than Proctor had ever heard her speak. And you also, Miss Ruck, he replied, in the same tone with just a hint of mockery. He could see her suppress a grin. I'll be blunt with you, Brown, Proctor said. His hands were spread flat on the table, and he stared at them as if he had a point of argument for every finger. One of the reasons I sent my beloved Emily away from Boston to the more rural climate and estate in Lexington was that I wanted to remove her not only from the tumult and mobs of the city, from the precipitous actions of those pernicious sons of liberty, but also with so many officers and other gentlemen about from the temptation of liaisons that would be ill-advised because of her relative youth. But for three months now, she's done nothing but talk about you until I finally agreed to arrange this dinner. Not exactly the cheerful welcome Proctor had hoped for. He spread his own hands on the table. I'm flattered that she thinks so well of me, sir. Daddy, I think once you get to know Proctor, Ruck's stern look made Emily wilt under her bonnet and fall silent. Turning back to Proctor, he said, You understand that it would be best if we get this all out in the open and put an immediate end to this unsuitable courtship. Proctor leaned forward and matched Ruck's expression. Sir, I came down to Boston to visit my aunt and for the honor of meeting you. But for Emily's sake, I would have walked all the way to Georgia. I'm willing to undertake whatever is necessary to convince you of the seriousness of my intentions. Emily blushed again. Proctor would have given her a wink, but Ruck watched him carefully and directly, so he held the older man's gaze. After a moment, Ruck looked away, raised his hand, and shouted across the room, Hannah! 
An older woman made her way to the table, wiping her hands on her greasy apron. Good afternoon, Mr. Ruck, and the young gentleman, and the young lady, she said. What may I bring you? What would you like to drink, dear? Ruck asked his daughter. Since this is the coffee house, I would dearly love to have a cup of coffee, said Emily brightly. The young lady will have tea, Ruck grumbled. Some Madeira for myself. What do you want, Brown? Beer. Pale ale, if they have it. Emily ducked her head. As you wish, sir. Beer? Ruck sneered when she is gone. That's a farmer's drink. That might be because I'm a farmer, Proctor answered. Ruck glanced at Emily and then leaned forward, which is exactly my problem with his youthful fancy. Daddy! No, I did not raise my daughter to become a farmer's wife. Turning to Proctor, he said, Do you think a farmer could keep her in the manner to which she has been raised? Proctor leaned forward in response, Sir, she knows exactly how I live, and it doesn't seem to frighten her exactly. Which is what I've already told him, Emily said. Ruck waved this off. That's just the foolishness and inexperience of youth. Your farm would start to look very small to her, like a cage, Emily, with the passage of time. Oh, it won't always be such a small farm, sir, Proctor said. Ruck leaned forward and studied Proctor again, as if there might be more to him than a too small jacket. What exactly do you mean by that? We've got more than sixty acres. With only the three of us there, my father, my mother, and myself, there's room to grow. Next year I'll buy two heifers for the pasture. And with the fields fallow most of these past ten years, they'll yield a better ha harvest of corn to take them through the winter. The stand of trees at the back of the farm has been untouched for a long time, too. They're big enough now that I can cut them down and mill them for a new barn first, and then in a few more years, a new house. You can only get so far with sixty acres, boy, no matter how you use it, Ruck said, but he was interested. Proctor stole a glance at Emily, and she gave him a small, encouraging nod. I plan to sell the beef here in Boston and save the money, Proctor said. Old man Leary lives just over the hill, and his daughter's moved off to Connecticut. Once I've saved enough, he'll sell his farm to me and go live with them. Then I can rent out his house and expand my herd into his field. I'll be the richest farmer in Lincoln within five years. Ten years at the least with that plan, Ruck said. He leaned out of the way as Hannah returned with their drinks. Ruck told him to bring them plates of chicken and whatever else was fresh in the kitchen. Emily poured her tea, saying, I'd much rather have a cup of coffee. It's a foul liquid. The Colonials would never drink it if it weren't for this nonsense over the tea stamps, Ruck said. He patted her hand. Coffee is beneath you. Proctor sipped his beer and found it dark and bitter. Voices rose an argument behind him, chased by the scuff of feet and furniture. Proctor twisted in his seat to look just in time to see a golden light flash so bright it made his head ache and his hand not into a fist. The light faded the instant the scuffle broke up, and Proctor saw that it came from the same British officer he had encountered outside. Do you know who that man is, Proctor said. That's Major Pitcairn, John Pitcairn, Ruck said, one of the best officers we have in the colony. Completely and utterly fearless, would charge a line of bayonets with no more than a butter knife. His men love him. Why do you ask? We bumped into each other once, Proctor said absently. He could have sworn he'd seen a gold medallion flash at Pitcairn's neck, but when he peered close, there was nothing. The big marine caught him staring, and Proctor glanced away. Ruck refilled his glass of wine. You're thinking too small, Brown. Proctor was shaken out of his thoughts. What do you mean? With the cattle, Ruck said. Think bigger. Do you think Boston's a big town, Brown? Biggest I've ever seen, though I've heard Philadelphia's twice the size. Ruck laughed heartily. Boston has 15, maybe 20,000 people, and that includes every jack tar who jumps off the boat to get drunk in the tavern. Now, London. London, she's a city. 700,000 people living there, Brown. You could drop Boston down whole in the London docks and not find it again for three days.
Emily caught Proctor's attention and rolled her eyes. The greatness of London was one of her father's favorite topics. You don't say, sir, Proctor said. I do say. That's why these sons of liberties are spouting nonsense when they talk about breaking free from England. The world's a big place, but the empire makes it small. We're all part of one big English family, and we'll all profit more if we stand together. He swallowed his wine and thumped the glass against the table. You're on to something with the cattle. Massachusetts already ships beef to Virginia and the Carolinas, even to Barbados and some of the other islands. They're too busy growing corn or sh tobacco or sugar to... Wait a minute. They're too busy growing tobacco or sugar to raise beef, so they'll pay top pound for it. That trade's going to grow, and a young man poised to take advantage could make himself a fortune and end up richer than the richest farmer in Lincoln, Proctor said. Ruck laughed heartily. Perhaps. With that, he started in on everything he knew about the business end of beef, from butchering to salting to shipping to markets. Emily seemed pleased. She sneaked smiles at Proctor, which he returned as surreptitiously and enthusiastically as possible. His beer turned out not to be so bitter after all, and before he realized it, the pint was, pint was gone, and he excused himself to visit the necessary house, not just to relieve himself, but to collect and relax his wits. If Ruck had meant to help him trade beef, Proctor could advance his plan by years, and he and Emily could get married that much sooner. That was even better than making a fortune. He pushed his way between sharp-elbowed men smoking long-stemmed pipes and junior officers quaffing rum or sipping bowls of chocolate. He smelled the privy as he passed through the back door. Look here, it's the runaway apprentice, said a thick Scots voice behind him. Proctor spun. The four Marines had followed him out the door. The one too big for his wee jacket, mocked the l huge Scot. They all laughed except for Pitcairn, who said, bring him to me. The huge Scot and the other man with bushy red sideburns seized his arms. Proctor was strong. You didn't plow and cut wood and harvest grain without being able to take care of yourself, but he didn't react. The last thing he wanted was to return to Emily and, fa and her father after a dunk in the privy. Pitcairn stepped in close. Why were you staring at me inside? Pitcairn glanced at the spot on Pit Proctor glanced at the spot on Pitcairn's chest where he thought he'd seen the medallion. I wondered who you were. He's one of his majesty's officers, the big man grunted in his ear. That's all you need to know. You have the general appearance, Pitcairn said, and dare I say the particular arrogance of many of these so-called sons of liberty I've seen around Boston since my arrival. Sons of something is right, the huge Scot said. I'm the son of Prudence Brown and no one else, Proctor said. See, he's not shaking or trying to bargain for his freedom, Pitcairn told the others almost respectively. He pulled off his gloves. To Proctor, he said, I want to show you something, a friendly demonstration. Proctor tried to pull his arm free on the chance that he could escape inside, but the big man tightened his hold. The other grabbed his right arm with a grip like iron. William, Pitcairn said to the fourth Marine, the pink-cheeked officer in the brand-new coat who had so far avoided Proctor. He bore a striking resemblance to the older man with a similar widow's peak and aquiline nose. Very likely they were father and son. Be so good as to lend me your knife. Sir? William seemed surprised. Your knife, damn it! He reached inside his jacket and unsheathed six inches of steel. Proctor struggled to get away, but the huge Scot behind him clamped one hand over his mouth and squeezed him in a one-arm bear hug that pinned his left arm at the waist. With a nervous glance at Proctor, William flipped the knife in his hand and handed it hilt first to his father. Pitcairn pressed the tip into his thumb until it drew blood, then held up his bloody thumb for Proctor to see. Don't worry, he said. The knife is for you to use. Fear nodded Proctor's stomach. He struggled to get away without striking the huge Scot or doing anything more to provoke the Marines. 
He looked at William, who dropped his gaze and stepped away. A cold smile crossed Pitcairn's lips. He pried Proctor's hand open and pressed the hilt into his palm, then squeezed Proctor's fingers closed around it. The Marine with the red whiskers chuckled as he clamped his roughed fists over Proctor's hand. The knife edge gleamed in the sunlight. Pitt Karen licked the blood off his thumb and held his arms open nonchalantly, stepping closer. Twisting his head from side to side, Proctor tried to talk through the big Scot's suffocating paw. He tried to push himself away, but his toes barely touched the ground. No jury would convince victim for attacking a British officer, not under these circumstances, but he doubted any jury would believe his version of events. Pitt Karen nodded to his men. The big Scot held him tight as red whiskers pulled Pitt... Proctor's arms back and thrust the blade at Pitcairn's stomach. Proctor struggled to divert it, but the knife was already moving toward the officer's white waistcoat. Proctor's forearm felt as if it had slammed into stone. The tip of the blade snapped off, flying away to nick the sleeve of Proctor's jacket. Pitcairn stood there with his arms still open, one eyebrow curled up like a question mark. Proctor panted through the big hand clamped over his mouth. What had just happened? The circle of light glowed at Pitcairn's throat again. Proctor detected the outline of a chain at his neck and the medallion of some sort under his shirt. Pitcairn pried the knife out of Proctor's hand and returned it to William. I'll replace it with a better one, he promised. There's no need, sir, William mumbled. The big Scot released Proctor from his bear hug and shoved him aside. The door opened behind him and Hannah stuck her head out of the alley. Seeing the expression on Proctor's face, she glanced quickly up at the Marines and said, Has there been some trouble here? No, ma'am, said Proctor. He tugged his coat back into his, his place. These gentlemen were just giving me a demonstration of in the superiority of London knives. She looked puzzled. Lund Major Pitcairn said, We were trading opinions. We both learned a few things. As long as these gentlemen are all satisfied and none of the other customers are disturbed, she said, and then she tossed a plate of bones and garbage over the side of a small fence where a pig roused itself from a muddy slumber and started rooting through it. The door closed behind her. Pitcairn studied Proctor judiciously. It's essential for you colonists to realize that you can't hurt us. I had no desire to hurt you, Proctor snapped. He would have added before, but he was still shaky. You're full of spirits, but that spirit ought to be aimed against the French and Spaniards and other godless papists, not against your fellow Englishmen. My father fought against the French in the last war, Proctor said. We're not afraid of a fight. Don't be so eager for one either, Pitcairn replied. You are fools to think that you're better off without the Empire. Spread that word among your fellows. The big Marine shoved Proctor aside, and the four of them peeled away to exit through the gate. Proctor turned away to go inside when a hand gripped his arm. It was William, the young officer, and he held his other hand open in a gesture of peace. The knife was just tinfoil, he whispered. Proctor snorted in disbelief. Tinfoil. Yes, that's all, he said. A joke. No harm done. Proctor struggled his arm free from William's grip. No harm done. We're all people, Englishmen, no matter what side of the ocean saw our birth. There's no need for us to start fights with one another. For people who didn't want to start a fight, they did an awful lot of provocation. I don't recall starting anything, Proctor said. Now, if you'll excuse me. His blood was still racing as re he returned to the coffee house, squeezing up against the wall to let another man pass on his way to the privy. He threaded his way back through the crowd and returned to the table where Emily sat alone. Where were you so long, she asked, and what's the matter? You look upset. He slid into his seat. I'm fine. She reached under the table, her fingers finding his hand. He looked over his shoulder at the back door where, he, when he felt her give his hand a little squeeze. I think Daddy likes you, she said. Of course he likes me. He had answered more than half distracted, still trying to understand what he had witnessed. 
He realized that he'd made a mistake the instant Emily's hand jerked free of his. She pushed her chair back and sat up straight. It's nice to see that you're not too full of yourself, she said. Humility is such a rare trait in young men. I'm sorry, Emily. It's just, it's just, just what, Mr. Brown? Spit it out. It's just that that wasn't a tinfoil knife. There, he'd spit it out. What are you talking about? The knife the British Marine had, it wasn't tinfoil. It had nothing to do with the knife, Proctor realized. Major Pitcairn had been wearing a protective charm around his throat. That's what Proctor had seen. It shone actively any time the Major was threatened, even by so little as a bump in the street. It was magic. Magic? Emily's face was puzzled, as though she were there trying to figure out if he were joking. Proctor opened his mouth, but no explanation formed on his lips. He'd said too much. Hannah said she saw you talking to Major Pitcairn, Ruck interrupted, returning to the table with a plate of roasted chicken, which he thumped down on the table. Dig in. She thought there might have been a problem, but I see that you're fine. I bumped into the Major again, Proctor said. We talked about London and steel. Good. Ruck squeezed his large body into the seat. That's a smart lad. Always make use of all of your connections. If you can sell beef to the beef eaters, you're well on your way to making your fortune. He cleared his throat. Emily tells me you serve in the colonial militia. Not just the militia, Daddy, but the Minutemen, Emily said, though her voice was cooler than it had been before. I don't understand the difference, Ruck said. The Minutemen are required to do additional training, Proctor explained. We have to be able to scout trails, run longer distances, reload and fire faster, and we have to be ready to fight at a moment's notice. It sounds like a sort of foolishness that ought to be that takes time away from honest work, Ruck said. And it's the kind of thing that the rabble-rousers in this colony, Otis, Adams, Hancock, their sort, are trying to raise up against the folks against the royal governor. I'm concerned that you would be part of that, Brown. Though she sat perfectly primly, Emily pressed her toe against Proctor's foot to let him know that this was an important question to her father. Proctor pulled a drumstick off the chicken, tearing off a piece of meat. My father served in the militia during the last war with the French and their Indian allies. They didn't have the Minutemen then, but he was a ranger, which is similar. If I'm going to do anything, I want to do it with, to the best of my abilities, just like he did. And he'd be disappointed in me if I didn't do my duty to the colony as he had done. That's one reason. And the other? Ruck asked, following Proctor's example and tearing off the other drumstick. Proctor put the meat into his mouth and chewed it a moment to give himself time to think. He swallowed, saying... All the men in my community belong to the militia, not just in Lincoln, but in Concord and Lexington and all the towns around it. So it's a great means to reinforce connections. That's how I came to find out that old man Leary was interested in selling his farm. Ruck chewed on his own food before he finally nodded, if not in approval, then at least in understanding. Emily relaxed, taking her foot off Proctor's. When you get ready to move your cattle towards Boston Market, Ruck said, you might want to begin by contacting a man named Elihu Danvers. Danvers has a house near the mouth of the river across from Cambridge. Although he's no great sailor anymore, he moves goods around the bay. As he continued with his advice, Proctor grinned at Emily around his mouthful of chicken. Of course her father liked him. She smiled back, but with tighter lips. Beneath that smile lingered worry over his unexplained comment about magic. Eventually, Proctor would have to figure out a way to explain the magic. He wouldn't be able to keep it secret from her, not if they were going to be together. He reached under the table, wiped his fingers on his breeches, and then stretched his arm to try to touch her hand. A huge ripping noise stopped Ruck in the middle of his description of the harbor shipping lanes. What was that, he said. Proctor looked over his shoulder at the torn seam in his linen jacket and said, that is what happens when you grow more than you expected. So that's chapter one. 
Um, I guess I'll read just a little out of uh, Baghdad at Sunrise. Sound reasonable? Um, so, uh, anybody here in military history? No? Okay. Um, one of our faculty members is uh, Colonel Peter Mansour, who was in Iraq uh, and served with uh, General David Petraeus as his executive assistant. He, he wrote a book called Baghdad at Sunrise, and uh, it uh, talks about his experiences in Baghdad uh, serving uh, as a brigade commander. It's uh, subtitled Brigade Commander's War in Iraq. So this is it. Um, and it's... Uh, it's one of these books that I think is really interesting, and I, I read it and interviewed him uh, for Writer's Talk, and it's not uh, a book that I think professes a particular political stance because I, I recognize that there's a lot of um, – uh, there's a, a ton of dispute over this, but it's a, a really interesting um, read about just one person's experiences in Iraq and uh, what he did and went through there. So – um, I'll read uh, some of it and um, go from there. This is from the prologue. Okay? The team of eight soldiers waited until nightfall, then moved in position on the roof of a multi-story building overlooking the eerily quiet streets below. Their mission was to scan for enemy activity, particularly the ubiquitous mortar teams that moved around the city at night despite persistent efforts to hunt them down. This was the heart of Adhamia. Anybody wants to correct me on my pronunciations or welcome to because I probably will get them wrong. A volatile Sunni neighborhood of Baghdad, a hotbed of anti-coalition activity where cold stares greeted American soldiers and where insurgents conducted nightly attacks. On this night, tensions in the neighborhood ran high. Six days previously, in a scene reminiscent of Somalia a decade earlier, hysterical crowds in Fallujah had dragged the burned and mutilated bodies of four American civilian security contractors through the streets and strung two of them up from a bridge after gunmen ambushed their SUVs with small arm fires and rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs. Many citizens had rejoiced along with their Sunni brethren to the west. Their elation would not last long. A half mile or so away from the team in the square near Abu Hanifa Mosque, a large, unruly crowd of several hundred Iraqis gathered. Before hostilities had begun, Saddam Hussein had been last seen alive here. The square had been the scene of fierce fighting ten months earlier when Ba'athist holdovers ambushed a group of American soldiers stationed in the area. On this night, the mob, its emotions whipped to a frenzied pitch, loudly protested the Marine offensive into Fallujah in response to the contractor slayings. Armed insurgents fired a number of RPGs toward the local police station. Iraqi police and American soldiers nearby returned fire and scattered the enemy. The team of soldiers established their observation post, OP. And I, uh, when I interviewed him, told him that uh, he has a... Uh, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the word here, and it's not coming to me. Uh, a in, in his preface, he, he lists all the military acronyms, and I found myself referring to it because um, after, he does, after he tells you about observation post, uh, OP, um, he just uses OP. From that point on, and, and uh, you know, knows that uh, you you know it, and that's a really sort of interesting thing because you begin to understand uh, some of the lingo, not by any means all of it. And I kept going back to the uh, thing at the beginning to say, "Oh, what's that again?" Uh, so anyway, the team of soldiers established their observation post and began to scan the neighborhood with night vision devices. 
In the fluorescent screens of light-amplifying goggles, the area appeared muted in shades of green and black. The streets around the building seemed tranquil, but the stillness was deceiving. The team could hear the sounds of explosions in the neighborhood. No one expected the calm in the immediate vicinity to last. It didn't. The American soldiers were not alone. Twenty minutes after the team's arrival, rocket-propelled grenades crashed into the building and automatic weapons fire plastered the area. The soldiers dove for cover. The team leader, First Lieutenant Brady Van Engelen, fell with a severe wound to his head. A round from an AK-47 assault rifle had pierced his Kevlar helmet and fractured his skull. The team's combat lifesaver, a soldier who had been given extensive first aid training, immediately went to work to staunch the flow of blood. The team, pinned to the rooftop by intense fire and with a seriously wounded soldier in their midst, made an anxious radio call to battalion headquarters for urgent casualty evacuation and assistance. Lieutenant Colonel Bill Rabena, commander of the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Field Artillery, immediately diverted the battalion's combat observation lacing team platoon the Colts, from another mission to extract the endangered team. With the situation unclear, First Lieutenant Eddie Kwan cautiously led his platoon toward the friendly occupied building. Tense soldiers kept a vigil, watch out for enemy on the rooftops and in the alleyways. Suddenly, all four Colt HMMWVs, high-mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, came under concentrated small arms fire and RPG fire. In the lead vehicle, Quan pushed through the ambush, but soon encountered obstacles that the insurgents had hastily erected to bar the way. Under heavy fire, lacking positive identification of the friendly position in the building, and unable to bypass the obstacles, the Colts temporarily withdrew. Emily f enemy fighters began moving toward the stricken observation post. As the commander of the 1st Brigade Combat Team of the 1st Armored Division, I listened to the increasingly tense reports flooding into my tactical operations center from five miles away. Even though it would take 30 minutes or more for an armored relief force to arrive on the scene, I ordered tank and infantry fighting vehicles support from neighboring battalions. The team threatened with being overrun didn't have 30 minutes to wait. Lieutenant Colonel Rabena directed a quick reaction force from B Battery, led by First Lieutenant Michael Valle, to link up with the Colt platoon and ordered Lieutenant Quan to re-engage. The reinforcements consisted of an M109A6 Paladin self-propelled howitzer, an M113 armored field ambulance for casualty evacuation, and an M88A1 heavy armored recovery vehicle for breaching obstacles. Each armor vehicle mounted a 50 caliber heavy machine gun, but the firepower would not be enough to overwhelm the well-armed insurgents and their RPG launchers, Russian-made RPK machine guns and AK-47s. So you start to get a sense, I think, in, in that excerpt of the kind of uh, stuff that he's talking about. It's a, a very interesting book, and um, I recommend if you're interested in uh, what's going on in Iraq, Iran, and in that area of the, uh, the na world, country, nation, world, uh, that you read it and uh, and then talk to or take uh, Professor Mansour's course. It was uh, an education for me. Um, and with that, I uh, kind of have come to the end of what I had planned. And uh, the only other thing I'm going to suggest is uh, two things. One is that, um, as she mentioned at the beginning, I am the host, uh, producer, um, occasionally editor of uh, our uh, Writer's Talk at OSU, and we're through the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing. We broadcast on 90.5 WCBE, your Central Ohio Public Radio Station, 
And uh, hopefully you're donating to them because they just went through a fun drive, and they're great folks over there. And um, we also broadcast on Buckeye TV, or we're beginning broadcast. And I think if your students here, you get Buckeye TV on your uh, cable, right? Anybody? Anybody? Buckeye TV? Nod your head. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully. So we'll be on there as well, and we're on EduCable. Uh, these are all television stations, and the Ohio Channel, uh, which is uh, throughout the uh, um, state of Ohio in various um, PBS stations. And if you go to theohiochannel.org, you can see our most recent interviews. We had one yesterday with a guy named uh, John. Oh, this is so embarrassing. I spent the day with him. He's one of the Vlog Brothers. Uh, anybody on YouTube familiar with the Vlog Brothers? Okay, John will kill me for having so quickly forgotten his last name, which is a, one of my particular talents. I have the ability to forget a name within about two seconds. But anyway, we talked to John yesterday. Uh, he was great. He does a lot of stuff with his brother, uh, Hank, and uh, they had this thing that the only way that they would communicate for a year was to to post a vlog to each other, a video log, right, on YouTube. And so they did this for a while. They got more and more publicity. Um, they started uh, a fan club called the Nerd Fighters, and uh, they fight for good. They fight for nerds, and that's what uh, John was talking about yesterday. He also wrote the book. Uh, he's written a number of books, Looking for Alaska, which uh, won a number of awards, including the Prince Award, and I, I probably should have read from that today in honor of uh, John, whose last name I forgot, but will be forever burned into my memory by the time I go home. Uh, anyway, so all of that stuff is on there, and it's uh, really cool. And if you know anybody who is interested in, uh, who is a writer, John Green, like John Green, uh, please uh, have them come out and talk to us. I'll do my best to remember the name, especially if they wear a name tag. I'm the inverse Gordon Gee because apparently he remembers everybody's name, and I remember no one's. So at any rate, uh, come on out, look, uh, go uh, listen to us uh, on uh, Wednesdays at 8 o'clock on WCBE and WCRS. If anybody's familiar with them, we're also on that. So we're trying to become the, the king of all media, uh, supplant Howard Stern. Soon we'll be swearing incessantly on, um, uh, what is that, satellite radio and television. Is that okay? You want me to start now? Anyway, thank you very much for coming. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, books, yeah.